Minutes ago, we held a hearing before Judge McGrath. It was our motion to dismiss 3,042 cases, outstanding warrants for the, where the charge was possession of marijuana as a misdemeanor or as a violation. Uh, the judge granted that motion. Those cases are now dismissed because historically we see that the enforcement of the marijuana laws has disproportionately affected men and women of color. I believe 86% of individuals who have been prosecuted in 2017 for these offenses were in fact men and women of color. So if for whatever reason the police, a police officer did, uh, did through inadvertence or non-awareness of, of what the court said today, uh, pull someone into one of these warrants, what would happen is simply following our policy today. And, you know, we would dismiss the case. This is significant to changing the lives of our clients and our communities that face over-policing. And if they get stopped, they could be put through the system and lose, they could, their cars could get towed, they could lose housing, they could lose, there's all kinds of collateral consequences that stem from an arrest from these old warrants. So I'm thrilled that the DA's office is, is working on this. All right, smoke them if you got them, people. It is uh, Wednesday, September 12, 2018. I've had an interesting time. Um, let's see what, what, I can, what I can talk about. I uh, spoke at the uh, Houston Museum of uh, african-american culture on saturday because uh, you know last week i had uh john guess who was the ceo of said museum and we were both talking about what i was going to do down there which was talk about uh mental health in the african-american community and it was it was an interesting hour it was a very interesting hour because uh 10 minutes into the hour of me talking to the people that are there uh, about uh, mental health in the African American community, which I've written about. Um, a woman in the front row uh, kind of uh, hijacked the whole thing because she wanted to get in how she felt about um, mental illness. Uh, which is basically she felt it was, uh, I think, like a white people thing. Uh, she's, you know, basically talking about how mental illness mostly was, uh, you know, created uh, because white people were going through stuff. And uh, it's kind of a culture-specific type of thing, which is kind of one of the things I've kind of always talked about how people see how African-Americans mostly see mental illness as a white people thing. So she was kind of proving my point. My favorite thing she said was, uh, what was it? Uh, depression is a construct, which was funny because, because, because John guess he was moderating the thing. And he actually said, cause he, he looked, he pointed at me and said, well, do you think his mental ill, his depression is made up and she said oh i think well i think it's a construct and i'm like trick i'm sitting right here just so basically you're telling me this depression that i've had for almost tw over 20 years is just something 
made up all the time to just feel horrible and want to uh, walk into traffic. That just me just making kooky stuff up or something like that. And just, yeah, she it's funny because she said she was a psychologist, but she also said she wasn't a clinical psychologist or even a practicing psychologist. She was, what did she say she was? She was an industrial organizational psychologist. I don't even know what the hell that means. So, uh, but it did uh, lead off this lovely uh, conversation this about um, mental illness within the uh, the audience that, you know, they talked about their experiences and just what they've been through in their lives. So it was, at least that was uh, uh, an interesting part of the, the day, apart from that, that Hotepi chick. You know she was Hotepi because she, when she, immediately when she started, as she was started talking, she pulled out a book from somebody, I think it's like the psych, the, the psychosis of something, and nothing screams you're a hotep when you have to pull out a book out of your bag for evidence. Like, oh, you can read it in here. I'm just like, or you can just uh, be, you know, a, a person who just, uh, uh, never mind. Well, just, yeah, just, you can be somebody who just have thoughts and opinions that you didn't read for some crackpot or something. But yeah, my, my guess to, tonight is an author and he and he took his book off the off the table which um i'm gonna need later because i need to look through it and um so just just like just there's 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 people out there who really likes to to let people know they read if they got a book like you can okay it's just i read too but i don't like pulling it pushing people's face it's just like we trying to like I hate those people. Just like, hey, I, I'm a reader. I got, I got this book that nobody reads, and just like, oh, whatever, dude. Just, I'll just go home, drink some, some whatever, some kombucha, and just uh, sit, a, sit in your, 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 your futon and read a friggin' book, all right? Just, all right. Uh, Hoteps and whatever. Uh, what else you want me to talk about? You want me to talk about, um. Uh, Nikki and Cardi throwing shoes at each other. So that was big news over the weekend. Just woke up. I woke up on Saturday morning and see the trending topic was basically Nikki Minaj and Cardi B throwing shoes at each other at New York Fashion Week, and people just like so outraged. Oh, I can't believe they they threw shoes or got in a fight or whatever. And I'm like. Those are the most two of the most hood ass chicks you've ever seen in your life, and just you, what made you think they were? Y'all watch Love and Hip Hop. Y'all know how Cardi is. She is she is the shoe throwing queen, and you didn't think that she would not finally throw a shoe at Nicki, especially since she's coming up with that album and everything. Just she, you know, she says, "Oh, she." Nikki disrespected my my kid or or whatever, but you know you know she's like, I'm, I'm about time I threw a shoe at at 
at old girl. And, she, and, and, and Cardi was the one who walked out with the huge ass knot on top of her forehead. Looking like a, like, like, you know, uh, face looking like a Nestle's crunch bar. It was like crunch everything. And, uh, so yeah, it was a bad weekend for women, for, for black women especially, black women, because of course there's the Nikki Cardi thing and um, Faith Hill, no Faith, not Faith Hill, that was last week, Faith Evans and uh, Mary J. Blige apparently got into it at, at, allegedly got into it at Diddy's party, I'm still trying to figure out the info on that, I think I have to talk to Mr. Goodbar about the, the details of that. And uh, George Zimmerman run his damn mouth uh, talking about going to threaten uh, Beyonce and Jay-Z, threaten to kill them, I believe, for uh, talking to his family because, uh, you know, Jay-Z produced that Trayvon Martin documentary and Beyonce, you know, he called, Be- George Zimmerman called Beyonce a, a broke whore and, uh, believe Jay-Z is going to be fed to the alligators in Florida. When are we just going to have a day where we all just get together and just slap the hell out of George Zimmerman? Looks like he does. He just he is just white privilege personified at this point. Just a guy think, oh, I got away. with killing a black kid, so I'm just going to. Oh, I'm just going to go buck wild right now. I'm just going to threaten people and just like you can't you. The beehive is going to get you regardless some way, somehow. So I don't know why George Zimmerman thinks, you know, there's a difference between like a Florida jury and Beyonce's fans. So. So this may be the last time we ever hear from George Zimmerman, just saying. And then, of course, we got uh, Serena Williams. Uh, damn, Serena just called called that Nathan Fielder looking dude a thief, the whatever the the judge or something. And he was just like, "Well, I never," and just ended up costing her grand slam and everything. And so, but uh, you know, she she you know she took it like a G. She you know she's you know she's Serena Williams just. But yeah, first of all, she got she's got a kid now, so so she can she probably doesn't you know doesn't really have to care about any of this. You know, just when you when you deal with childbirth and just like the last thing you want to hear from is some white dude on in like a lifeguard chair giving you lip for cheating or whatever. So it's just like, of course, you're gonna go off on him. My body was almost ruined. And you you giving me all this all this smack right now, thief ass dude, and of course uh, you know Naomi Osaka uh, ended up uh, you know winning it, and and of course uh, Serena was the uh, you know was was giving her uh, giving her her props. Yeah, you, know, you have to give you know of course just then of course you know that's the way uh, sisters should be. Because you know, even though you know everybody's saying uh, Saka is uh, uh, Japanese, she's also half a Haitian. So yeah, she's a sister too. So you know, don't forget about that. I know, like, hey, just shout out, you know, Japan and everything. But you know, half of that is is is, is kind of ours. 
this what's going on with tennis because yeah serena got into it she got banned for wearing that black panther suit and then like uh that french uh, tennis player alizé cornet she she was wearing a shirt backwards and then she she took it off for five seconds to put it back on she had a sports bra and she got and she got a warning for that because you know god forbid you you're a woman and you do womanly things in tennis it's just oh geez, I, don't even, I don't even know what the hell they're trying to prove over in tennis anymore it's just this is as you can see, I don't watch a lot of tennis, so I have a lot to say about it. All I know is that people are messing up all over in that in that field. Speaking of somebody messing up, uh, Kanye at the Pornhub Awards. Apparently, he's the he's the creative director of the Pornhub Awards, which, um, believe it or not, I have not seen. It, yeah, I, I'm shocked about it too. Uh, cause I, I hear it was just one big mess and, uh, just, he was wandering around, uh, telling, uh, porn stars how to pose and just out making people wear his awful clothing. And, uh, I think he premiered that, that whack ass, uh, low the video he did with low pump. So yeah, I think I need to uh, check that out at some point. But I hear it was a train wreck. Just man, Kanye, what what the hell is going on with that dude? Just ah, uh, geez, what else we need to talk about? Just Les Moonves over at uh, CBS. He got he he resigned because apparently he's a dirtbag. And everybody's coming out the woodwork to say he's a dirtbag. Just like he tried to uh, ruin Jan Jackson's career after she showed a little nipple at the Super Bowl. And then uh, the creator of Designing Women wrote a piece today for the Hollywood Porter saying that uh, you know, he practically tried to sabotage her career and stuff. It's just... That's, this, that's the thing about it is it's just like... Oh man, it's just it's just getting tiring just hearing about these these men who don't seem to understand that you can be powerful and not be a douchebag. Just you know, you don't, you don't have to like you know the Louis C.K. thing. Just you know, I know see Norm Macdonald, you know, uh, support you know trying to defend him and Roseanne for these stupid ass things that they've done, and just like listen, yes. Yeah, you can be a brilliant person, it doesn't matter, but you know, if you're doing some deviant, creepy, douchey behavior, uh, dude, you gotta go. Sorry. Just gotta gotta bounce, man. Just you know, you can't just be wandering around thinking you can just uh uh, uh expose yourself and, 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 and stick your tongue down uh somebody's throat and stuff and just I mean, I mean that that's that's really a true instance of just how power corrupts because it makes you do the the dumbest ass things. Like you know, you could you, you know, you're a powerful person. You can just I don't know get 
out of get a hooker or somebody. Just I, we we've been through this before, but it's just it just it just boggles my mind how people in power do the the dumbest things. And you think I might want to uh, I might go into talking about Trump, but I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it at all. I'm trying to see if there's more things to talk about. And I'm still trying to figure out that thing about the woman that that went into the guy's house, guy's apartment, uh, a police officer, woman police officer, and uh, shot and killed the dude who owns the apartment. Oh man, uh, it's that's 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 one of those things where it's just like there's nothing else that can be said except you gotta go. Like there shouldn't be any argument. Just like you went, I don't know why you went in somebody's house. Maybe you're you're tipsy. Maybe you were blunted or whatever. But when stuff like that happens. And 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 it was in Dallas too. This, uh, oh man, it was in Dallas. Wait, I don't know what the hell is going on in Dallas. Because uh, first there was that, and then earlier there was that guy who crashed into uh, the police station. No, no, not the police. Uh, the 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 TV news department, TV news station. And crashing there, uh, yammering and stammering, talking about whatever. I mean, what's 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 happening in Dallas? It's like Dallas is starting to scare me now. Dallas is starting to scare me now more than Houston, believe it or not. And and this is Houston, the I almost got in a car wreck today, capital of the world. Uh, it's let's get into some music. This is uh, the most uh, geriatric show on uh, public radio. Yeah, this is this is the sour hour. Let's do this. My regrets look just like texts I shouldn't send, and I got neighbors that more like strangers. We could be friends. I just need a way out of my head I'll do anything for a way out of my head In my own way, this feel like living Some alternate reality Yeah. 
Okay, um, this is uh, uh, Sour Hour, a.k.a. Everything is Cancelled, a.k.a. Uh, Damnation Nation, uh, a.k.a. Everybody's Trash. Um, uh, you listen to that on uh, KPFT HD 2. Not three, two. I am Craig D. Lindsay, aka uh, Black Larry David, aka Anastasia Beaverhausen, aka Young Two Piece of Frenchies, aka of I'm a villain in my city. And uh, if you wanna hit me up on on the on the World Wide Web through various uh, social media platforms. Twitter, Instagram, whatever. It's uh, uh it's at Uncle Crizzle, U N C L E C R I Z Z L E. And if you want to let me know you're listening to this show, you can hashtag the Sour Hour, which nobody ever does, except me. Uh, and if you want to listen to archived episodes, uh, go to uh, my Mixcloud page. Um, mixcloud.com slash Uncle Crizzle. Uh, let's start off with what the hell I played. Uh, top of the top of that block was uh, Come Back to Earth, the first track off of uh, Swimming, the new and sadly uh, last album by uh, the late Mac Miller, who... Uh, Passed away on a Friday from a drug overdose. Um, this, yeah, I was, I was, I was, I've been listening to the album. I, I'm listening. I was listening to the album before it all happened, and just I've been meaning to play some stuff from that that uh, album. I was meaning to play it last week, but uh, just feel it's very apropos now. Just um, shout out to uh, Mac Miller. My condolences to his family and friends. They're listening. I, I, I. Uh, had a, a a small glitch in the middle of that song. I was I was making sure that that track wasn't wasn't gonna be on repeat, and I it went on my <laughs> try to get it on my make sure on my iPhone, and I was pushing the button, and sure enough, it went to Siri, which um, in the past couple of weeks I've learned it's uh, I don't even use Siri all that much, so I hate when I have to, when I push the button and Siri just automatically comes up. I'm just like I don't want you Siri. Leave me alone. Uh, maybe I'll get, have to get one of these newfangled iPhones that just get, was announced today for a thousand dollars or whatever. Just or just wait till this one uh, craps out and I just get the nearest one for two hundred bucks or something, wherever it goes. But um, but yeah. But anyway, that that first track was Mac Miller. If you haven't listened to Swimming, please do. It's a great album. And uh, please, for the love of God, do not blame Ariana Grande for none of for nothing. Please don't be one of those douches. And uh, the next track was a uh, an artist I'm really feeling these days, uh, Leon Thomas the Third. That was a uh, PLW Pretty Little Weapon from his uh, Genesis EP. I'm I'm, I'm 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 loving that EP. You should really uh, listen to check that out somewhere. Leon Thomas the Third. He's going places. And uh, finally, um, I just felt the need to listen to Ani DeFranco uh, right at this moment and uh, decided to play the uh, 
peace and love mix of a joyful girl uh, for a more more joy less shame EP. I was I was deciding whether to play the original uh, joyful girl from Dilate or this one. I I've always been a big fan of this ever since I listened to it from the from the Jackal soundtrack. Yes, it was on there. So so I decided to to pop that. I need the Franco track in there. Well, uh, let's get into uh, the uh, interview portion of the show. And uh, today, um, well, this evening, uh, I have a guest who is a person who who knows a lot about art. And he has uh, written a a book, uh, especially uh, Texas-based art, as evidenced by his latest book, Art Outsider Art in Texas Lone Stars. Uh, his name is uh, Jay Wennert. Am I pronouncing that right? You did that very well, Craig. I did that. I I I, I did that very well. Yet forgot to turn your mic on. So well, I'll uh, say it again. You did that very well, Craig. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Jay Wennert. Uh, welcome to the Sour Hour. Sir. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, and uh, we met uh, a few weeks ago. Um, you tell actually told me uh, during the during the uh the music of the show where you said that uh that was the last time you were promoting this book was at this um uh ga- gallery exhibit what is it you said it was Kolsch? yeah run by franny kelsch yeah yeah kelsch sorry and uh she had a couple of people there what i loved about that particular um uh, art opening reception and whatnot was the um i'm always a sucker f- for uh art exhibits or art openings that have cheese and uh, that one had a nice bevy of cheeses, cheeses and everything. It's like a collection. They had the brie. They had other ones that uh, I wasn't so familiar with, and, and they had very uh, like a lot of aged, ch- uh, a couple of aged cheddars there. So, you get any of that? No, I, I got there after you. Oh. I mean, you were there like right next to the door. I mean, so I got you, to the cheese after you. Oh, you got to the cheese after me, so you didn't even know. Yeah, Most of it was gone. Oh, so yeah, so you were at because you were at the door. That's how I, I I saw you were at the door next to a table with uh, all with a book of these, uh, art, the outsider art in Texas, and I'm just like, hmm, that's he right. has a book, and I have a it was books, show. books before cheese. Yeah, yeah, I have a show of sorts, so I figured why don't I just talk to him about see if I can get him on a show and talk about uh, his book. Yeah, and here we are. Yeah, and uh, look, I was I was I was thumbing through it and. Uh, is, is this a series of books right you have here? No, it's a series. It's one of a series of books that are funded by this couple who uh, have a foundation that uh, produce art books with Texas A&M University okay. Press. Well, well, who's this couple, right? Uh, John and Betty Lindsay. Okay. Yeah. Really, Lindsay. Wow. They're Just philanthropists. I wonder if we're related. Uh, but, uh, okay, uh, how did you get involved, uh, with, uh, doing this book? That's a long story, of course. Well, let's go. But, but it started with my interest in collecting what's called outsider art. And we can talk and describe what that is. But I've had this long interest in collecting. And what flowed from that was a desire to learn more about the art and artists. Mm -hmm. So it became not simply a collecting of art and objects, 
uh, activity, but it came, became a collecting of information and understanding and a intellectual and curiosity-based activity as well, which led into my own writing about art, getting involved in the art community, curating, also doing a little bit of dealing, and educating. So I was at a conference a couple of years ago where the senior editor for Texas A&M Press, Mm -hmm. Tom Lemons, was in the audience. And I was talking about outsider artists in Texas to a symposium of uh, people who are enthusiasts about early Texas art, Mm -hmm. art from the early part of the 20th century and 19th century. And he was fascinated to hear about these, this group of artists that I was talking about who were completely new to them. Mm-hmm. And he took that as an opportunity to invite me to write a book on the subject, which I was uh, pleased to try to do and worked with Texas A&M Press. And the book came out this past April. So it's a relatively new book. And uh, enjoying getting it out into the public, and appreciate being here with you to do it too. Doesn't he have a remarkable radio voice? It's I, I would I would have to say it's better. Than my, I'm shocked you don't have a show you on here just like you would fit in fit nice or any NPR station. Well, maybe this will be an audition. Yeah, pretty much. But some yeah, that will probably happen. Somebody will listen to this show. And think, oh, I don't like this dude who hosted, but the guy who's the guest, he has a perfect voice. We can you know, see, we can work with him and do something about that. That's 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 usually how my life goes. I'll be but, sure to thank you. Thank you. Please do. But um, so yeah, how long have you been dealing with outsider art, and what made you get involved with it in the first place? Well, I've been collect that collecting interest started about thirty five years ago, mm-hmm. and. As I've come to understand it for me, I didn't grow up with much art education or much exposure to art. Uh, I didn't grow up in a family that went to museums or had much art in our home. Uh, So I didn't, I, I went into my adulthood without a great deal of real interest in art. But I came to be introduced to these artists who are called outsider artists. Mm -hmm. Within that term is this idea of artists who live and work and create outside of the conventions, the institutions of art, and also the institutions and conventions of mainstream society. And when I was introduced to these artists, I think that resonated with me in that these were artists who were not connected to, knowledgeable of, uh, engaged with the established art world. Mm -hmm. They did it themselves. 
And so I think that's what attracted me initially to them Mm -hmm. and that I thought uh, I understood more about what they were about than what I didn't understand about uh, contemporary abstract expressionists, for instance. But what was the eureka moment for you? What was when, because you, as you just said, like you didn't know a lot about art, you didn't grow up or that, you didn't go to art museums. There must have been something that made that, that you saw or made you go, yeah, this, this is how I'm going to roll from now on. There was. Mm-hmm. And that was meeting an actual quote unquote outsider artist who lived and worked on the street mm-hmm. near my home, <clears throat> excuse me, in Baltimore, my hometown. Oh. His name was Paul Darmafall. Okay. And Paul, he's known as the Baltimore Glass Man. Mm-hmm. And he lived and worked out on the sidewalk of a busy thoroughfare, mm-hmm. creating these kind of montage pieces of broken, salvaged glass mm-hmm. on found boards that he thought of as roadside signs. He hung them on a chain link fence next to the street or hung them on the exterior wall of a bar that was right where he was working. And he considered these things that he was making roadside signs that were supposed to impart a message to the motorists passing by. He didn't consider himself an artist. He didn't identify as an artist. If you try to engage him about the beauty of what he was making because the the glittering glass, uh, the construction of how he made the things he was making were beautiful as well as mysterious and strange. But if you try to engage him in a conversation about the artistic merits of them or his creative process like you might do with Uh, an artist that you meet, none of that meant anything to him. He only wanted to know if you got the message of his sign, if you were getting it. He was perplexed by the idea that someone would want one of his signs to take home and hang in their house as art. Mm. Those were not ideas that... uh, were any part of his thinking about what he was doing. And so meeting him, getting to know him, spending time with him over the course of about 10 years uh, was really that aha moment in many ways because it made it very real and personal, uh, getting to know him and his creative process as I came to understand it for myself through getting to know him. Y'all, did you two used to go out and get chicken boxes? No, we didn't, but we hung out on, uh, cause I, I always say, obviously like if I ever go to Baltimore, I've never been to Baltimore, but, uh, I go, there'll be like two things. One, isn't there a chart, isn't there a Chartres, uh, theater? In a movie theater called Chartres, and or I'm thinking there's the Charles, the Charles, yeah, there it is, theme the Charles Theater. That's where John Waters screens most of his films. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So 
there's two things. Like, I would go to Charles Theater and I would go get a chicken box because I believe that's, a, that's that's what they call this fried chicken carryout in Baltimore. Well, I'm not as familiar with chicken boxes as I am with lake trout. Oh yeah, that too. Because yeah, it's just like seafood. Yeah, um, that's that's a heavy thing over in Baltimore. So yeah. But uh, okay, but uh, but uh, yeah, you uh, you hung out with this guy, and uh, you 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 picked up you picked up some of his work, and... right? And and got to understand from him the motivations, the source of his creativity, that was in many ways different from what you experience when you talk to. Uh, an established artist who's part of the art world, whose work is based, of course, in a very central creativity, but that artists who are also ambitious, artists who are after acclaim, Mm -hmm. artists who are creating art for an audience and for sale Mm -hmm. to make a living. None of these aspects of art making are part of an outsider artist's world. They're creating their work for very personal, often very internal reasons that are not outwardly directed uh, towards an art world or an audience or viewer. Well, you, okay, you, you go from you go from Baltimore to here. When did it happen when you moved to Houston and then start um, delving into um, outside outsider art in the Lone Star State? Yeah, well, I moved here from Baltimore in 1991. Okay, so I've been here in Houston 27 years, and came to understand that Texas is home to many outsider artists of great acclaim and quality. Uh, and so, you know, my all this happened as part of my ongoing, as I said, education mm-hmm. and developing understanding about what outsider art is and is about. And so I quickly got exposed to the Texas artists uh, who, again, have now national and worldwide acclaim and started adding them into my collecting interests and writing about them, uh, developing exhibitions around the state for their art and having Texas art be more of a focus because it was now Texas is my place and, uh, working and being interested in the artists of one's place was interesting to me too. How do you go about tracking a lot of these artists down? Cause a lot of these are, several of these artists have passed away. And I mean, just, uh, cause, cause I, cause I have read that. I mean, there's one, I think, uh, is, is it Charles Delshaw, Delshaw mm-hmm. who, uh, whose work, uh, you found somewhere, well, in a dump or something. Well, I like, did not find it. Oh, yeah, you did not find it. Okay. <laughs> so, but you're right that the stories that accompany many of the outsider artists, because they are not promoting their work, mm-hmm. they're not showing it to people often, yeah. 
it often comes down to someone having to discover it. Mm -hmm. Someone happens upon, like I did, Paul Darmafall in Baltimore on the sidewalk making these things and saying, oh, this guy's creating really interesting and compelling art. He's not taking it around to galleries or seeking out an agent to take his work to show to people. It comes down to someone discovering it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that happens after the artist's death, which is what happened in the case of Charles Delshaw, Mm -hmm. uh, who in his later years, he was someone who emigrated to Texas from Prussia in the mid 1800s and lived uh, everyday life as a butcher with a family. Uh, He went out to California as part of the gold rush. He had this, you know, interesting immigrant history. But in the last two decades of his life, in his retirement, when he had gone to live with his stepdaughter and her family, he was alone, his wife, his wife and children had died. Uh, he kind of reclused himself to the attic rooms of the house until he died. And it was only after his death where the books that he was creating for 20 years that chronicled his participation in a secret society of men who were creating lighter-than-air flying machines pre-Wright Brothers. Uh, These books are uh, among, people think, some of the longest, largest books written. They're full of uh, cryptic text and these amazing drawings and paintings of the flying machines. How he did this, how deep his fantasy world was, and that he was doing all of this in utter isolation and secrecy. He told no one that he was doing this. No one knew he even had these interests, much less was engaging in the activity of writing books and illustrating them with these amazing uh, drawings, which are now uh, in the Menil Collection and in the Witte Museum in San Antonio and uh, private collections around the world. And, and there's also a case where you talk where you talk about artists who basically um, are homeless and just the or just you know people just transients or, or what like uh, I believe isn't it Richard Gordon Kendall was a yes Richard Gordon Kendall was someone who once removed I discovered here in Houston yeah uh, Richard a friend of mine here in Houston was a lawyer downtown and on his walks back and forth between his law office and his parking lot. He thought he saw a homeless man who looked like he was drawing Mm. and told me about him. He was reticent to approach him and ask him what he was doing, but he knew that's what I did. 
Mm-hmm. So I went and uh, and scouted for Richard, who I for the man who my friends all who I came to know as Richard Kendall, uh, and I did eventually find Richard and learned that Richard Kendall, a man he he lived uh, in what was Houston's World Trade Center uh, in their parking lot, which was just around the corner from where the new baseball stadium was being built in the late 90s. And Richard spent all of his days walking around downtown Houston and then coming back to his spot and trying to draw the buildings that he saw. And for him, he talked about it as being a uh, a mental exercise. It was his way of keeping sharp. He wanted to be able to see the buildings, but try to draw them from memory. He salvaged all of the materials that he used for his drawings, from pens and markers and crayons to the paper that he used, and created this amazing body of work. But in a true outsider tradition, when I met Mr. Kendall and introduced myself to him, I learned that he had never shown these drawings to anyone. Mm-hmm. I was the only person who he had ever shown them to or had ever shown any interest in them. Yeah. Uh, he was not making them to show to anyone. He was not making them uh, to promote himself as an artist or an art maker. Mm-hmm. They were all done for his own personal reasons. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, uh, we got to wrap this up soon. Uh, got real quickly, uh, intuitive eyes, because you've had that for, uh, I believe, a long time, 19 years. That's it's it's Because when I immediately uh, talked to you, I looked you up and I saw you had this thing. And I, was like, it was a, I thought it was a collective, but it's just you. Yeah, and intuitive eye is my arts business. Yeah. Uh, and where I... Uh, write about art, so one at intuitiveeye.org. One can read about many of the artists who are included in my book and others. Uh, There are links for people to uh, get and purchase Outsider Art in Texas, Lone Stars, which I'm happy to have everyone within your listening audience do. And uh, appreciate your having me here tonight. Uh, well, uh, when can uh, where can people uh, contact you if they want to on the social media sphere yeah. or everything uh, like that? Well, they can contact me through www.intuitiveeye.org. My contact information is there. Uh, I'm on Facebook and Instagram at Intuitive Eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, In December, I'll be at the Menil Collection talking about outsider art and my book. uh, December 12th. December 12th. So, okay. And I'll be up in Austin in November at Uncommon Objects, which is a great shop for outsider-ish things. Mm -hmm. Um, And who knows what else? Yeah, this this is a great book here. Uh, Outsider Art in Texas is that that's at uh, is that at all stores or is just certain stores? It's at uh, the Menil Bookstore. It's at Brazos Books, River Oaks Books, and you can get it at Amazon, 
dot com. Well, uh, can I eat this one? Sure, you can. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that one. I never I just because I've been I've been broke, but uh, yeah, just hope you know, just kind of lean. It's it's a whole long thing, but uh, thank you uh, very much, Jay. I appreciate it. Glad to be here, uh, Craig. Uh, thank you for uh, coming down, talking to me, and uh, letting people know about your book and everything. And uh, this is Craig D. Lindsay saying, uh, I have a few things to say about uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Oh, we're out of time. Uh, stay tuned for uh, Flight Squad Radio, everybody. I'll see you.